This week on Pop of Culture. Talent is really everywhere. That a lot of people are talented. They just need a space to, to do it. <laughs> you know, and we have that. An interview from downtown. I have built relationships with some really wonderful theaters. I've had my plays produced at some wonderful theaters. I have had my work produced consistently. I work consistently. And for me, that feels like success. We talked to a playwright who moved from New York City to the top of a mountain. Coming up from IPR. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. From Indiana Public Radio, this is Pop of Culture. Today, we listen back to a conversation my co-host Jen Blackmer had with an artist who moved from New York City to Tennessee. Jen has been seeking out artists who choose to live and work outside of major coastal cities. Some of these artists started out in places like New York or Los Angeles, but the journey led them to create art elsewhere. Elizabeth Gregory Wilder is a playwright, and her numerous plays include Fresh Kills, The Flagmaker of Market Street, The Furniture of Home, White Lightning, and others, and they've been produced at the Royal Court in London, Alabama Shakespeare Festival, Denver Center, Cleveland Playhouse, Kansas City Rep, Northlight, and many, many others. Her plays have been produced everywhere, but she chooses to make her home in Tennessee, where she is the assistant professor of creative writing at Suwannee, the University of the South. I spoke with Elizabeth about her career and why she chooses to make a home on the top of a mountain. Can you, can you describe Suwannee a little bit for our audience in case they're not familiar? So Suwannee, Tennessee is this little hamlet um, on top of a mountain, actually technically the Cumberland Plateau, um, in between Chattanooga and Nashville in Tennessee. When you drive into Suwannee, you go through these gates, uh, these big stone gates, and there's a sign that says you are now entering the domain. Um, so it feels a little bit like you're you're entering some sort of cult, and sometimes it feels <laughs> a little bit like a cult. Um, but it is really just um, um, one of the most tranquil, peaceful places um, you can ever imagine. Um, the the domain, which is what it is referred to, um, is actually owned by um, the diocese, the Episcopal diocese. And so um, it's protected land. We have these wonderful hiking trails. Um, the university itself is modeled um, um, after Cambridge. And um, so everything here is built out of stone. And uh, so the buildings just, it looks like something you would see um, in an an old um, New England campus. Sure. Um, So so, uh, they call it the Hogwarts of the South, if that that helps you envision it. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that's very unique about Swanee is that... um, we all wear teaching gowns. So yes, I've seen photos. <laughs> yes. So when I teach, I, I wear a gown um, and the students wear gowns to class. Um, so they, they earn their gowns based on their academic achievements. Um, 
And so that's that's a big part of our tradition here. Um, and there's something that I really love about that because I think tradition is there's something very theatrical about tradition. The there is you know theater is a ritual, and um, and um, church is a ritual. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at at how those two things intersect, you see that there there are a lot of similarities there. Yeah. So the pageantry of some of our ceremonies here on campus feel very theatrical to me. So um, even if you're not someone who's particularly religious, I think that, um, you know, I, I find a lot of comfort in the predictability of those rituals. I love that you say that because I, when I often tell this, the story about how I got involved in theater, it was through church. I grew up in a um, tradition that had uh, a lot of, of rituals around, you know, Easter and Christmas and, it, just the performativity and the meaning that those events had were really what drew me into theater as as an art form. Um, did you move to Tennessee for the position for the job you currently have? Yes, yes, that's that's what brought me here. Um, I certainly. Um, I certainly wouldn't have thought 15 years ago that I would be living on top of a mountain in Tennessee. Um, but, you know, sometimes we we end up right where we're supposed to be. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. It's been a, a wonderful place, actually, to be a writer and to be a parent. Um, it has given me the freedom to be the writer that I want to be, while also the, giving me the freedom to be the parent that I want to be. And I think that is a really hard balance to find in our business. Absolutely. And let I, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. So when you lived in New York, you lived there for 11 years. What was it like? What was what was your if, if you were to describe that experience, that chapter of your life to somebody who's never been there before, never spent an extensive amount of time in New York? What would you how would you describe that to them? So I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama, right down on the Gulf Coast. I, I actually lived on a houseboat on the on Dog River right off the Gulf of Mexico um, until I was about seven years old. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I feel like being Southern really shaped my identity as a writer and as a storyteller, even if I think most of what I write these days isn't necessarily rooted in the Southern experience. You know, sometimes I, I revisit those stories, but, but not all of my work is Southern. Um, but I, I moved to New York about a month before my 17th birthday. So I had a really interesting introduction to New York because um, when I first moved to New York, I was only supposed to go for the summer. Um, my mother later told me that she knew I would never come home. Um, when she put me on the plane, mothers mothers know these things sometimes. Um, but I, I was taken under the wing of um, a guy named Roger McFarlane, who was the executive director at Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS at the time, and he took me everywhere. I, you know, I was sixteen, turning seventeen, and um, you know, he was taking me to Broadway openings and weekends in the Hamptons. And he introduced me to Larry Kramer, who gave me the best writing advice I'd ever been given, which was writing is like throwing up. You've got to 
get it all out and clean it up later. Um, and um, it was just sort of a magical experience. So um, I had graduated from high school a year early. And so I took what would have been my senior year of high school. And um, I, I worked at the theater development fund during the day and I ushered for Broadway shows at night and on the weekends. And it was just sort of everything that like a nerdy theater kid could possibly want. It was just magical. Um, I got an agent because um, I went there to be an actor. Um, I was auditioning for things. I got a show. I got my equity card. I thought this wow. is going to be easy, right? You did, like, you did all of it, didn't you? I did. I did all the things. I've literally never used my equity card again um, after that show. Um, I, you know, I went there to be an actor. I think I I realized very quickly that I wanted to be an actor more than I wanted to do the work necessary to be a good actor. And, and that's probably a realization that more people need to have earlier in their lives and in their careers. Absolutely. Um, For me, that was my uh, first semester freshman year of college, actually. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing that happened that year was I got two free tickets to the Young Playwrights Festival at the Public Theater. And I went to see the show and I remember um, Madeline George had a play in that festival. You know, and here's this kid who was like a year older than I was who had this play. And I remember thinking like, this is a this is a play that like I could have written. Like these are stories I could have told. And I think up until that point, um, you know, all the plays that I I had ever read mostly were the plays that were in the Mobile Public Library, which sure. meant I thought that, that those were the people who could be playwrights. And suddenly I, I saw people who were my age and, and women who were writing plays. And Wendy Wasserstein happened to be there that day for something. And um, and I, I went up to her afterward and I sort of like spewed forth all of this like 17 year old enthusiasm. And she she just looked at me and she took my hand and she said, you should go home and write a play. And I thought, well, Wendy Wasserstein told me I should write a play, so I should probably do that. But I didn't know how to write a play. So I, I bought a copy of the Sisters Rosenzweig and I started writing a play and I didn't know anything about the structure. So I basically just followed the structure of that play. Sure. Um, yeah. And and that's how, that's how I wrote my first play. Um, so that was just a really and I and then I was just hooked um, and I, I submitted this play to a a play festival in New York and it got selected. And suddenly um, I had, you know, a Tony nominated actor who I had seen on Broadway doing a reading of my play. And I was like, this is awesome. Wow. Um, and I, you know, and if the first time the audience laughed at something I wrote, I just, you know, I was done. I was, I was, I was in, I was in it to win it. Yep. Um, and then I got a letter from my mother that said, enroll in college or come home. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. So I went to purchase college and I got a, a degree in, in women's studies and economics. Um, but I took my first playwriting class there with Jeffrey Sweet and, um, and I, I stayed in New York and I commuted back and forth. And Jeffrey Sweet and I would ride the train back to New York together. And and so I got sort of like a, a master class on the ride back with him every, you know, every week after class. And so um, I've just, you know, I've been writing plays ever since. Um, so, I, you know, I went to school and um, 
was writing plays and got my first little production in New York, a little equity showcase theater right after I graduated from undergrad. And um, I started applying for different summer programs, which is how I got introduced to Swanee. I, I did the Swanee Writers Conference twice. I see. Um, and so, and because I did the Swanee Writers Conference, someone here introduced me to the Ensemble Studio Theater, where I got into Youngblood, um, which is their incubator for writers under 30. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was there with Amy Fox and Jay Holtham and um, Lloyd Saw and just, you know, this just amazing community of young writers, you know, and we were and we were putting on shows on the weekends and all working, you know, terrible day jobs. And, sure. and it was just, yeah. And you you're know, describing just, I, Elizabeth, this story is is so similar to other stories I've heard in terms of how your network begins to to form and then blossom. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Yes. Could you have done any of that or come to the place that you are in in your life right now without having thrown it all into into the the pot and just moved to New York. You know, I that's a that's a that is a really good question. Um yeah, I think everyone really has their own journey. Um I have no regrets about my time spent in New York. I think I realized fairly quickly that I was not necessarily a New York writer. And, you know, and it took me a while to kind of figure that out. And I think part of it was, you know, I started getting work produced outside of New York and I was having more success getting work produced outside of New York. Um, you know, when I left New York, I actually left New York to go work in television, mm -hmm. um, which was a whole other experience. But, you know, I, I do think that there is a way to have a career um, and to build a career without necessarily starting um, in New York or LA or Chicago, um, I think the things that I learned by being a part of those communities was incredibly invaluable. Mm -hmm. um, but I also feel like there are cities outside of those three cities mm -hmm. that have cultivated a theater culture that if you are able and willing to invest in those communities, you can create the same experiences there. You know, this summer I went to Atlanta for a long weekend and saw three shows in two days and, and amazing theater. It's excellent um, theater down there in Atlanta. It really is. Yeah. You know, a Atlanta um, has great theater, St. Louis, Austin, you know, there are all of these other places where, we're seeing really good theater being made. You know, so much of what we talk about when we talk about the business of the theater is, is how do we make a living in the theater? And, you know, it is hard to find professional work and, and, and ways to support yourself um, as a playwright um, or an actor in some of these smaller markets but I feel like it's all still, it's all still relative, right? You know, mm -hmm. the smaller markets also have lower costs of living. Um, smaller communities, you know, smaller audiences, smaller, smaller yeah. communities. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're going to have to have that other job more than likely. Mm -hmm. But here's the other thing. And this is what I also learned about the joys of regional theater. 
you know, I've had plays done in New York or like I had a show done in San Francisco that did very well critically. But, you know, I, I can have a show done in a s- smaller theater in a bigger city and maybe make $1,000 or $2,000 off of it. Or I can have a play done at a major regional theater and have many more people see it and get a check for $20,000 or $40,000, you know? And so financially, a lot of times building a career in regional theater can actually be more financially profitable. Sure, sure. And the... It's, you know, it's the old adage of do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a in a massive pond? And I, I think that it, one of the things that struck me as I was listening to your, to your amazing story about how you've built your career is this sense of hindsight, because I do the same thing. As I look back on the, the, the plays I've written, where they've been produced, the successes and all of that is that everybody does have their own journey. And I think there's some definite advantages to working in a number of different communities, a number of different types of places. You know, New York is not Indianapolis, is not San Francisco, and they all have their own unique um, uh, audiences and and community projects and things like that. So it what I find really exciting, I think, about where we are right now is that communities are able to connect with each other through some of the technology that we have. You can kind of live anywhere and have plays done in other places you've never been. And I think oh, yeah. that that's a that is a, an interesting dynamic that probably didn't even exist when we were both starting out, right? That you had to know people who then knew people who would hand your play to somebody and it would get produced, you know, two blocks over. So it's it, it's I, I think the world is very different than when you and I were both sort of first starting out. Oh yeah, you know, and and the way the way people network, like just things like the the national new play network and being able to you know put scripts up there i mean I, you know i've gotten productions because s- someone read a script that i posted right sometimes it feels like you're just submitting things out into a, a void um but you know I, I i'm always telling my students once they start submitting their work like so much of it is also just a numbers game right and and you just have to keep putting it out there i mean you know, I, I remember when I was first starting out, it was also, it was expensive to submit your work because you had to mail a hard copy. Sometimes multiple hard copies. Yes. Yeah, so I- then you're, you're printing, you know, you're printing your, your scripts and then you have to put it in a priority mail envelope and you've got to pay the $4 postage, which, you know, back when it was only $4 and, you know, <laughs> but that was one of the things I loved about doing temp work is like every time I had a temp gig, I would go like, run multiple copies of my scripts um, on their copy machines because I couldn't afford to, you know, go to, you know, Kinko's and have my stuff printed. Yeah, hopefully um, the hopefully the places you worked for aren't listening. But that's uh, it was many years ago. So I'm sure it's fine. I like to think of it as corporate support of the arts. There you, know? you go. That's amazing. Yes. I love and that. it's just so much easier to get your work out there now. And, um, you know, the, the other thing that whether you're an artist or not, um, that we all have to keep in mind is, I think we all have our own definition of success. And 
for some people, that's going to be like, I have to have it that I have to have that show in New York. I have to have a show on Broadway or I have to have a show at Playwrights Horizons. And like, we would all love to have that, um, obviously. But I think I, I got to a place in my life where I was able to sort of step back and go, you know, I have built relationships with some really wonderful theaters. I've had my plays produced at some wonderful theaters. I have had my work produced consistently. I work consistently. And for me, that feels like success. And, um, you know, and I'm able to be a parent and I'm able to own a house and I have a retirement plan, you know, <laughs> all of these things that as you get older, you know, and your priorities shift. Um, so I think that that's a big reason why we're seeing more and more kids stay or young artists. I don't want to call them kids. Um, staying in, in their communities or going to these other regional communities and investing in those communities where it is a little more manageable financially right. to have the career that you want and also be able to, you know, afford to survive. I find that that my goal, I think, is as an educator and as a, I'll just say, older member of the, the the theater community is to assure younger artists that I know that it is okay. You know, it's okay to set up shop in Indianapolis or Nashville or Minneapolis or Atlanta, which are, you know, these, these communities I think are really exploding with some amazing work. And mm -hmm. so my hope is as we continue to figure out the, the role that the arts play in our societies as they evolve and change that these these communities will become even more and more to you know to use the term legitimate as places to to begin a career and to build a career so i'm very hopeful i think that you know the journey that that you went on and that i went on uh, is certainly important and got us to the the places that we are right now as as artists and i i don't think those journeys need to be duplicated Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, and, and I love that I've had all of those experiences. And, and, and the thing is, is by having all of those experiences, especially now that I'm teaching, I'm able to bring those experiences and those relationships that I've built into the classroom. And, and that only helps my students. Um, you know, and the industry has changed a lot. And, and I do work really hard to try to continue to maintain and to build new relationships so that um, I know what's going on in the industry so that as I prepare my students to go out into the world, they know what to expect um, as well. That becomes a responsibility, I think, for all of us to determine and perhaps even redefine what makes a piece of art, whether that's a play or uh, a, a piece of fine art or a sculpture or music, what what we think of as legitimate and good and moving and powerful and that the success that that an artist has in in Muncie or Swanee or <laughs> you know that this success is is a true and valid success definitely I agree completely that was our conversation with playwright Elizabeth Gregory Wilder 
This is Jen Blackmer. And I'm Kara Duquette. IPR's Phil Hoffman has been speaking with arts leaders at institutions across Muncie. This week, he brings us an interview from downtown. We're joined today by Laura Williamson, who is the Executive Artistic Director at the Muncie Civic Theater. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about the the Civic Theater's mission. You you have kind of a unique way of being in the theater world. So can you talk a little bit about what the Civic is all about? Sure. Our mission is to be the theater for the whole community and to enrich our community through theater performance, education, and outreach. So any program that we do, we, we hold it up to those three ideas. You know, is it, is, it a, is it a high quality performance? Is it educational? Or is it an outreach program? So which, you know, could be, any one of our programs could fall under one of those three. And you certainly have. I mean, as I pulled in today, there's a school bus out front, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of activity, and it's sure. early morning, which right. you don't think of a theater being busy early yeah. in the morning. Well, you know. <laughs> right. Talk a little bit about sort of like the, the parts of the, the theater building and mm-hmm. what you do in those different parts and kind of how people might be uh, experiencing the kinds of programs you offer. So we have we have six big main stage shows a year. That's kind of the point of entry that, you know, I think people um, identify with with Civic. Uh, a lot of people who have been in Muncie for a long time call it the Civic. Um, and that's that's always a, a cue that someone has, you know, been here in the past. We refer to the building now as the Boyce Block ever since our renovations. We, we've really learned how to tell our story. And with the lens of historic preservation, this is Muncie's oldest building. Um, one of the nice um, aspects of the history of this building is that James Boyce, who built the building, um, invited the Ball family to come to Muncie and sent them a telegram because it was it was heard, it was knowledge that Frank Ball was seeking land in Ohio to rebuild a factory that had burned in upstate New York. So, um, so James Boyce made contact, he came, uh, and this is just after the, the gas boom. And in the 1870s, um, and well, actually, no, in, in the 1880s, and the building was built in 1880. And so James Boyce and a group of other business people said, if you'll, if you'll build your factory here, we'll give you five acres, a gas well, and, and um, some money on the side. And uh, we all know how that turned out. Absolutely. So, and, the, and the room that we are in right now is where they signed that contract. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we are in the black box theater. Yes. So, the, of course, mm-hmm. if you've been to the Civic before, you know there's the main stage theater mm-hmm. and then there's the black box theater. Uh, can you explain a little about how the, the the programs presented might differ between those two locations? Sure. So on our main stage, which is, um, so so as I mentioned, the, the building was built and it was a general store. And then in 1906, uh, also, back to James Boyce, he said, you know, people in Muncie really need something to do. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a fact. Yeah. Uh, it was then as it is now. And he sold it to a man named C.R. Andrews, who converted a third of the building into the Vaudeville Theater, which was the star vaudeville theater so then and then eventually the other two sections of the building became apartments um so people it was the star vaudeville then it was a movie house it was the hoosier and then muncie civic has been there since 1961 and so we have the main stage shows that and that space seats 395 but then the space that we're in right now the casaza family studio theater 
is a is a black box theater. We can seat up to a hundred, but that is that would be with a very small playing space. Um, seventy five to eighty to ninety five is is our kind of average in this space, and so the seats are you know just you could you know very close, and so so there's a little bit more. Um, emphasis on on acting and you're very close to the audience the set everything is very close it's just a different experience than than a, a more heavily produced show on the main stage where there's a little bit more focus on uh, lighting and a lot of the musicals are there so there's a larger budget for that just because the shows themselves are larger sure. and so we, we never want there to say well this is our small budget theater it's it's just that the shows are smaller but of equal quality. And and sometimes we really try to keep family friendly as a as a as a goal. And we might step outside of that parameter for one show out of our six, kind of call it our date night show. But up here in our black box space, we we are able to have a little more leeway to talk about edgier and more just complicated issues. You know, that 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 idea that theater can be to, here to make people think about something and, and not just entertainment and escapism. Now, one of the things as you talk about the, the main stage that I've been fortunate enough to come and see several shows here at, at the Civic, um, that 395 seating capacity, at least in my experience, is almost always completely full. Oh. And in this day and age yeah. where people don't as much go out to anything, mm at all mm. there's so much you know netflix and sure. cocooning yes. things yes um what do you attribute that success to because you are often have a packed house and as you said it's generally in my experience anyway families mm. right it's a whole bunch of kids and their sure. parents sure well we something that i think is really lovely um, about community theater is that it is by the community for the community so that aspect of supporting each other of, of even even the people behind the scenes, the, the people, the numbers of people that it takes to produce a show in terms of building the set, building the costumes, um, the ensemble, and then there's the running of the show, the people that are the stagehands. Oftentimes, it could be up to 75 people just, in that, that would include a cast, 75 people producing the show. And so then when when you're connected to one of those people and you want to support your family member, friend or neighbor, then that's our audience. So we've it's it's really lovely. I think that um, whenever I talk to kids, we, I gave a tour this morning of the building and told us told the story of, you know, the Ball family and James Boyce. And, they, you know, their eyes are just like it's it's their connection. It's a very personal connection to to history. And I say, have you ever seen a show or do you ever know someone that's in a show and the hands go up and which is really lovely. Um, but that gives them the idea that that could be me up there, you know, and I love that. I, I've always carried the idea that talent is really everywhere, that a lot of people are talented. They just need a space to to do it, <laughs> you know, and we have that. And so we need people with talents, you know, and, and we have the time to to coax that out of people and to build that confidence, because that's really what it takes is is just the confidence to step up. You know, it's just yeah, it's easy. You're right. It's easier to just watch TV or watch somebody else do this. But then where is that moment? Where is that little voice that says I could do that? And you know what ends up happening is that they make friends. 
I thought that a, a really good slogan would be, we should uh, forget the dating apps, come and be in a play. <laughs> <laughs> people meet people. That's a different way to market it's it. It's a different but way okay. to market it. I know, like Valentine's Day, you know. <laughs> no, but we've had, uh, I was just sharing a story with you earlier about um, special friends that, that they get married here on the stage because this is a, a really sacred space for them because of the people that have changed their lives. Now, speaking of of sacred dates mm. coming up very soon yes there is a show that yes. is uh there's a lot about the show mm. that is going to be familiar to folks yes. not just the content but yes. also some of the folks that are going to be in the show can yes. you talk a little bit about that yeah this is a really special story um so we're getting ready to do fiddler on the roof i have to say it's very special to me my husband and i met so we uh -huh. that's one of those things is that we met at a community theater in Michigan, and the first thing we ever said to each other was at an audition, and it was for Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, I love the story. Um, so we asked a question um, at an artistic committee meeting uh, over a year ago where we said, you know, authentic representation of any story that has to do with a specific race is, is extremely important. And Fiddler on the Roof is maybe the quintessential community theater show because the community is a character. And so can we do this if we don't have a tevia that is Jewish representing? I'm just, we're just asking the question. And our director of the show, Dr. Michael O'Hara from Ball State, said, wait a minute, I have an idea. And he contacted a former student named Adam B. Shapiro, who was in the Yiddish theater production off-Broadway playing the rabbi and understudying the role of Tevye. And he's done um, other things. He's, he plays the rabbi on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which just wrapped up. So we invited him with a, a contract. So this is something special. So even that, you know, we do, all of our actors are community members. We make an exception in this case. And he arrives April 1st. He'll come in and be memorized. And we're sending him videos of all the choreography and the blocking that we're doing. Blocking means stage directions. We have his measurements. We're building his costume right now. But this is a very special opportunity that allows us to be more authentic than we might be able to be. So we're, we're happy about that. And it gives our actors um, just something really special, you know, to to perform to perform with and something for our audiences as well. So we're very excited about Adam's arrival and and uh, the show opens April 12th and we run through April 28th. Everything is on our website and we have a wonderful youth program as well, opportunities for kids, summer camps, and the auditions for Mary Poppins are coming up in March and it's all on the website munciecivic.org or call 288 play. 288 play. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Well, Laura Williamson, <laughs> thank you for joining us this afternoon. We appreciate you being here and let the show go on. <laughs> it must. That was IPR's Phil Hoffman talking to Laura Williamson, Artistic and Executive Director at Muncie Civic Theater. Let's find out what another local artist is working on. Hi, my name is Ron Rich Creek. I'm uh, from the Muncie area and uh, I enjoy the arts. I enjoy creating. And I've started back in the 70s as a Ball State student and art major. And uh, due to circumstances, I've just evolved into different different mediums. I, I enjoyed my, uh, my black and white photography. I was a portrait photographer for a number of years. And the amount of time that it would take to do one archival print, 
it's one, it's not cost effective. And just like any art, no one is willing to pay for your time. Uh, that's that's one of the drawbacks. And, uh, you know, obviously everything's gone to digital and, uh, you know, the black and white and color printing uh, is going to the wayside. But I understand I went and bought some uh, some new film and uh, Roberts in Indianapolis said, you know, he's getting a lot of a lot of customers in their uh, their camera uh, store is is fantastic. Can you tell us what um, an archival print is? An archival print is one is on fiber-based paper, basically black and white photograph. You're you're oxidizing silver, you know, the silver nitrate on the paper. And uh, archival prints are are what museums use, and uh, it won't fade due to sunlight. You know, you've seen a lot of uh, old Civil War photographs, you know, that are still very very sharp and you know distinct. Whereas uh, my senior picture is one of the first color ones that were uh, uh, given to us by People Studios in Muncie that, my gosh, I mean, I have really faded. <laughs> That's so you you have this skill that I think I think you should revive it. You said you just got some film. Yeah, I, I've got uh, black and white film. I, I will develop it myself, you know, but I really lack a dark room. That's Ansel Adams said, you know, that's where the uh, the orchestra is, is, is in the, the dark room. My oldest brother used to be an instructor at uh, John Heron in Indianapolis when, when he moved from uh, 16th Street to the IUPUI campus. Uh, he took his uh, dark room with him. <laughs> I'm kind of, oh my goodness, I don't have a dark room anymore. But uh, <laughs> I've been known to develop film in a bathroom before. You know, if you have just total darkness, you could do it. Well, I'm super glad that there are people who are still doing this the way it used to be. Um, yes. You're like a wheelwright or a iron worker. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, really, it's really cool. It's a dying art, you know, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, that in that medium, you know, my mentors with Edward Steichen, Albert Stiglitz, Paul Strand, those are the people that you study and those are the people that uh, I really enjoyed uh, watching. Um, if if you really wanted to see a really good photography magazine, you'd pick up Vogue or Harper's Bazaar and think that's where the photographers were. And besides the fashion photography, they would also do portraiture. They're the ones that set precedent. You're absolutely right. I was wondering if, if so what are you working on right now? Well, uh, photography, I'm just kind of playing around with it, but mm -hmm. uh, I just unloaded the uh, bisque kiln. I fired last night with some uh, smaller things, uh, little uh, button jars. And uh, my style is based after uh, the Asian, the aesthetics in pottery was established by the Koreans, Japanese, and the Chinese, you know, they're the ones that made the kilns, and they're the ones that developed the glazes, and they're the ones that developed the porcelain, you know, and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, you do the history just like anything else. Well, can you share, like, describe, like, some of your pottery to us, what it might look like? Some My pottery, uh, I still, you know, it goes back to uh, uh, drawing, or 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 photography it's line and form that's what influences me the most mm. to get a good line on the outside of a pot you know a lot of people you know do a lot of decoratives and stuff you know my main objective is 
to make a, a piece that has a beautiful shape to it. Um, Korean moon jars are just gorgeous. They're just a, a small lipped sphere with a small foot. And the Koreans said the small foot or the bottom piece on the bottom uh, would extend just a little bit and give the appearance of that piece floating. Oh, and you know that that's that's the culture of finding beauty. Yeah, like beauty in nature. When you say you and the line informs your work, drawing a line in concert with the shape. Can you yes. talk about that a little more? Well, uh, like in figure drawing, you know your contour, the contour of uh, of that body, whether it be a body or or a piece of clay, you know, a sculpture. That's what I'm seeking. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I, I just wanted to know, is there, when you're, you're talking about nature and a lot of inspiration that, that you get, do, do you get inspiration? How do you get into a creative mindset? Oh, well, it depends on the medium. You know, um, there's days where I don't throw because um, I'm just not into it, you know, but mm -hmm. days you know, where I'll get out, you know, and... Uh, I'll see something. Um, I got up in the middle of the night uh, and wrote down something that I was thinking about, you know, obviously in my sleep, but I got up, wrote it down. And uh, I thought of a falling petal from a flower, just a, just a single petal falling from a flower. You have a stem and, you know, that's going to be a theme in one of my next pieces. You know, you, you, uh, I don't know whether it's subconscious or what, you know, but it's just something, wow, I think, I think I'll use that. You know? That's beautiful. Do you, do you know what it's going to, how, how you're going to, tr to translate that? Yeah, yes, I do. And, and uh, it was kind of a, a happy mistake out at uh, John Peterson's place where uh, we were putting uh, white over a uh, type of uh, green glaze. It's called a, a striped green. It's kind of a, a lighter green and the copper in the A-Strike Green, turned the white glaze into a lavender. Ooh. You know, it, it, it's, yeah, you'd have to see it to, to appreciate it. But uh, a lot of times things, you know, by mistakes are are just as valuable as as planned. I, you know, to sit down and, and you know, to copy, like being a photographer for over 50 years, uh, our daughter, who was an art major at Ball State, says, Dad, you're too anal. Loosen up. You know, and when I draw now, I'm a lot more free in my line. Uh, whereas with a photog uh, a photograph, you know, you're you're very exact. Yeah, you, know, you have to loosen up a little bit. And the same thing with uh, with the pottery. You know, uh, uh, you have an idea in your head, and that's what you strive for. But uh, it doesn't happen all the time. It's true. But, yeah. <laughs> I I wanted to know, like, does it help you to move between the medium that you work on? Like, I do, I do. Uh, I I enjoy drawing. Um, I haven't so much uh, with the photographs or the photography lately. Yeah, uh, I'm more of a figurative person. Uh, I with the photography, I was more of a a, a portraiture. And uh, Steichen, uh, Irving Penn, all those old guys, they would find people's faces with character. 
Mm-hmm. You take a, a a good black and white photograph, you know, and you you know just the person's face will tell a story. Uh, you know, Dorothea Lang, Dorothea Lang Walker Evans, uh, all the uh, photographers during the FSA, the Farm Security Administration, back during the Depression era, would go out and uh, hunt down people of strife. You know, the back you know FDR wanted to document the plight of. Uh, America. And so he sent these photographers out to, in the Dust Bowl, and uh, they were published in Life magazine. And due to those photographs, it changed public opinion in regards to our social status in the United States. Art in general can change. Obviously, you know that. I mean, it can change people's attitudes. And people, the majority of the people just don't understand that. You know, they just think it's it's just putting oil paint on a canvas, you know, but people, you know, you look around everything, everything that man has made has been put on a piece of paper with a pencil, a pen, whatever, you know, you have to have a, a, a foundation that you build from that, you know, and uh, art is, in my opinion, is to create an emotion, whether it be positive or negative, that emotion can change the world. I heartily agree with that, Ron. I want to thank you so much for talking to us, Ron. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're listening to Pop of Culture. A few places and events we're excited about this week include the Loblolly Nature Preserve in Jay County. As we get closer to spring in Indiana, this dedicated nature preserve has approximately 3.5 miles of easy walking trails and a quarter mile ADA accessible trail with benches. The preserve is open to the public from dawn to dusk and features a tree identification trail. If you forgot to do something for your Valentine or if you need a little extra love for yourself, the Richmond Symphony Orchestra is performing a concert they're calling Love and Fate. It's this Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Tickets can be found at richmondsymphony.org or by calling their box office at 765-966-5181. Did you know that there's a refuge for freedom seekers in Wayne County? This eight-room home served as a safe haven for more than 1,000 freedom seekers on their journey to Canada. Levi and Catherine Kaufman's home became known as the Grand Central Station of the Underground Railroad. Tickets are available at indianamuseum.org. The eclipse is coming, and we are in the path of totality. What will you be doing? One event is Meg's Country Celebrations Eclipse Experience on Saturday, April 6th, Sunday, April 7th, and Monday, April 8th, the big day. Embellish your eclipse glasses, listen to live music, make jewelry, and more. Go to Meg's Country Celebrations on Facebook. Have an event we should hear about for Pop of Culture? Talk to us at indianapublicradio.org forward slash pop of culture. Pop of Culture on IPR is made possible in part by the Indiana Arts Commission, a state agency, the IAC's arts partner for East Central Indiana, the Community Foundation of Randolph County, the National Endowment for the Arts, a federal agency, and by Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. 
Well, that's our show. Pop of Culture is produced by Luke Jones. It was hosted this week by me, Kara Duquette, with special thanks to Jen Blackmer. Pop of Culture is a production of Indiana Public Radio. We're online at indianapublicradio.org and in the real world at Ball State University.